0: Our text for today is Acts chapter six, all the way through the first couple verses of Acts chapter eight. And the title for this message is super fragile, fascist was Stephen's diagnosis. The the elders and scribes unable to reason with or withstand the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen was speaking, that's verse 10 of Acts six, secretly instigated men who would speak blasphemous words, uh, who, who would say that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, And will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So what's the accusation? We need to make sure before we dive into this really big section of scripture, because we're going to read all of chapter 7 together, we need to understand what Stephen's responding to. Why is he saying what he is saying? Well, the accusations that I just read from chapter 6, involve essentially uh, that Stephen is anti-Israel, that Stephen is anti-Moses, that Stephen is anti-law, that Stephen is anti-temple, and that he never ceases uh, speaking words of blasphemy against all of these things. So Stephen, in order to respond to those criticisms, begins with a, uh, a recitation of the, Israel, the history of Israel revealed in the Old Testament. In chapter 7, the high priest says in verse 1, are these things so? And Stephen responds in verse 2. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, I would encourage you to do that because this is going to be a pretty prolonged uh, section of me reading. So if you think it would be helpful to you to read along, uh, this might be one of those moments where you'd want to do that, grab your Bible and open to Acts chapter 7. Or if you think you can just hang and do an audio book kind of deal where you listen Um, to me reading that's fine as well but I am going to be reading the whole chapter beginning in verse 2 and Stephen said brothers and fathers hear me the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran The nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they will come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort... Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he had become the father of two sons, now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt "'performing signs and wonders in Egypt and the Red Sea "'and in the wilderness for 40 years. "'This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, "'God will raise up for you a prophet like me "'from your brothers. "'This is the one who was in the congregation "'in the wilderness with the angel "'who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. "'He received living oracles to give to us. "'Our fathers refused to obey him, "'but thrust him aside And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon. The images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what kind of place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So why would I read that in my study time this week and conclude that Stephen is telling these adversaries that they are calloused and fragile and fascist? Well, let's take those words one by one. Firstly, I concluded that Stephen is considering them to be calloused because what Stephen is doing in that long review of redemptive history is he's identifying kind of two kinds of people, two columns, if you will, two categories of people. On the one hand, there are relative few men and women who receive the word and carry it forth into the world. And these are typified almost as sort of early uh, pretypes of the Word incarnate. These are people that are walking in the Word and obeying it with their lives, and so they're sort of walking Word uh, people. So that's the one column, and then on the other hand, in the other column, you've got people who see that kind of walking testimony and reject it, despise it. This all begins... Uh, to be a thing, to be a kind of way of thinking about God's work in the world with Cain and Abel. Abel is that personification of the Word; he's a, he's the walking Word, and Cain is the the, dis, the despising force against that kind of living, embodied Word. Cain is presented with the option to be that kind of person. It's not a racial or genetic thing; it's 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 really just two different kinds of hearts that are displayed right from the very beginning, really, of God's story. If you've ever gotten to the place in, in Genesis where it talks about the Nephilim and the sons of God and the sons of men, and you've wondered, what's going on there? Well, it's it's not really all that fantastical, unfortunately. <laughs> it's actually just talking about these two categories of people, the the embodied word people and the people who despise that embodiment of the word. And so what Stephen's doing is he's establishing these two categories, these two columns, and he's putting Abraham in the column of word person, and he's putting Moses in the column of word person, and Joseph's in that column, of course, and so is David. And then on the other side, you've got people like Joseph's brothers, or, though he's not mentioned, Saul uh, in, in the Davidic story, or the what what what's interesting and this is what tipped me off to this idea is is that Stephen keeps referring to those forces which opposed Moses as our fathers, so you have these two categories: the one is this almost otherworldly kind of individual who walks with the word and then you have the other that's just more prevalent and and that's the person who despises that word person who despises the word. And so what Stephen is saying is, is that these heroes of the past are not yours to defend. You're not even on the same team as they are. They were word people, and you were word destroyers. And the final evidence, all you need to know, folks, uh, about your being the word destroyers, Stephen seems to be saying, is that, you know, Abraham pointed to Christ, and Joseph pointed to Christ, and Moses pointed to Christ, and David pointed to Christ. That's why they existed. And you stood up against all of them by standing up against Christ. So he's essentially saying, no, you're wrong. I'm not against Moses. You are and always have been. Ongoing resistance to the word people, to those called by God to carry the word. That is the thing that causes a person to be calloused. I found out this week in my studying that there's this thing called the Matthew effect. That's kind of a sociological phenomenon. And it's actually named after a verse you've probably heard before in Matthew 25. It appears twice in Matthew. I think the other time it's maybe an eight. That doesn't sound right. Earlier. The the one that is most commonly referenced is, is where Jesus says, for to everyone who has will be given more and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And it's this idea of the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. What does Jesus mean in that passage? Well, he means the, the people that have heart to obey the word they will obey the word and receive even more they'll receive even more light they'll receive even more insight they'll receive even more wisdom But the people that have no heart to obey in their disobedience they will lose even that little bit of insight they had to begin with that's why there's great urgency to our obedience. Disobedience makes us less sensible to God's will. Obedience makes us more sensible to God's will. Thus, as it says in Romans 12, when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, we cease to become conformed to the pattern of this world. Our minds are renewed and we can discern what God's will is. That's the column of word embodied person. And that's a way of suffering. All of the people on that list suffered and suffered unjustly. But on the other hand, you've got the Romans 1 column. Not only not the, not the word embodying, but the word disavowing, the word disobeying kind of person. Romans 12 people, they obey and their minds are renewed and they get to see more of God's will. But the Romans 1 people have little insight, but they do have a little insight. And even what they have, they disobey, they dishonor. They refuse to give God thanks or honor him or acknowledge him. And so they become futile in their thinking. What what's happening in this passage is Stephen saying, Friends, you're insensible. You belong to that long line of people who oppose the word when it appears in your midst. And so in verse fifty one he says, You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did so to you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So that's what I mean when I say that Stephen's diagnosis is that these are an un, these are a calloused people. Their hearts are hard. Their ears are hard. They always resist the Holy Spirit. They're stiff-necked. What do I mean when I say that Stephen was suggesting they were fragile why would we say that they were fragile well there's a very interesting thing that happens and it's kind of frightening honestly in life when we worship God alone when he is all we want all of our hope all of our aspiration is to know God and enjoy him we become the most anchored stable solid unflappable kind of person you can find if you've ever wondered why Jesus was so unflappable, because the one thing he wanted couldn't be flapped. <laughs> the one the one thing he loved, the, the one thing that he identified with, couldn't be flapped, it couldn't be shaken. Why was Jesus so unshakable? Because the thing he loved was unshakable. So that's a marvelous, glorious truth, because when I'm feeling fragile and shakable and flappable, Um, i can look and ask myself well why 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 what what am i afraid of losing there's this incredibly painful idea in scripture that you can go from being that kind of person an unflappable person to being full of neuroticism and and fragility all by adding just one thing to your worship isn't that crazy and it could be anything you can add one love to that one spot that's supposed to be reserved to god only even just one other love one extra thing christ plus one thing and it could be a good thing suddenly you move from being unflappable and stable to being fragile and tentative and the personification of a house of cards and for these people they were doing that with all of the uh, vestments of worship the law the temple moses All of the messengers had become for them, to some degree, a message. And friends, boy, I wish I could point at them and say, Huh, look at that. Can you imagine ever doing that? But friends, all of God's gifts are messengers of his goodness. And it doesn't take long, whether that be our marriage, our family, our children, our health, our money. It doesn't take long at all. To take one of those messengers that god has sent us and turn him turn that messenger into a a, a thing of worship and as soon as we try to add even one more thing even one more good thing to what we long for and want we become the most fragile of people and that's where these people were we're going to see in a moment they're capable of great anger And I've found over the years, and the scripture seems to bear this out, that anger is so often a part of fragility and fear and weakness. So that's why I'm saying that, uh, I think Stephen was saying that they were fragile. Think of it this way. Uh, These people worshipped the Ancient of Days. They had, by this time, in this moment, been engaged in worshipping the God of the universe for thousands of years. But simply through the destruction of one building in one place, the temple in Israel, their entire religion was upended. Their entire form of worship was upended. This was an accusation they made against Stephen. And I think they were wrong in in saying that Stephen thought this. I don't believe he probably understood all of this, but of course it wound up being true. The temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. And from that moment till today, everything about the method of worship in judaism has been transformed through the destruction of one building well that's not something we point our fingers at that's something we learn from because that's exactly what can happen to you and i we could be thinking that we are the most solid and dedicated worshipers and lose the one thing and suddenly become eminently fragile and flappable It's always hard for me to watch people add one thing. You know, I think maybe we see this in others better than we see it in ourselves. And so it's hard. It's hard to watch someone add one thing to their pure, to what Paul refers to as a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. To add something to that. It's hard to watch that because you know that person is entering into, entering out of stability and into instability. And it's so hard to help them to see, by the way, that they really are loving that thing as the Lord. Um, it's so hard to get them to see that because because the things that they are adding are almost always good and they, they find a way to kind of convince themselves that, no, I'm not worshiping. I'm not worshiping this. I'm just, I'm just, it's just an expression of my faith. Yeah, that's that's what these people thought about Moses and the temple and the law and so on. So what about fascists? Why would I say that, that, that Stevens' assessment is that they are callous, they are fragile, and they are fascist? Well, I read an interesting story this week about John Lennon as a boy in Sunday school. Now, you got to picture this. This is England after World War II. You know, lots of rubble still around. You know, England took a long time to rebuild after the bombings from Germany. And um, his Sunday school teacher uh, was talking about the Pharisees, and Lenin is reported to have said, "Yeah, I guess they were fascists." And his teacher was deeply offended by this because she thought the Pharisees were bad, of course. But she had just been bombed by the fascists, you know. And in her mind, no, no, little John Lennon, no, the Pharisees were bad, but they weren't like Hitler bad. Um, that was back in the days when people were resistant to compare things to Hitler. <laughs> and so John Lennon uh, got in trouble when he got sent to um, the, the priest's office and he and his friend got caned for making this mistake and I thought that was a really unfortunate way to teach a kid about fascism <laughs> you're wrong let me whip you to show you so why would I say that, uh, that these people were fascists? Well, it is a difficult word because it is so overused, but in the, in the Italian, the original, the word just refers to groupings or bundles. Um, I think the word is in Italian literally bundle. One of the things that's key to fascism is this mob mentality that we see in this passage. And we see this elsewhere in among the, amongst the religious ruling class in their interactions with Jesus and later on through the book of Acts and their interactions with Paul. This idea of as individuals, they would not ever think they could stand against Stephen or Jesus or Paul, but they get this sort of false emboldening as they stand around in a group. And so fascism seems to be this this idea of the mob rule, uh, mob frenzy, but they're caught up in this idea that they are acting nobly. They're caught up in the idea that they're, you know, that they're saving humanity or whatever. Um, look at verse 54. This is still chapter seven, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. I read this fascinating book um, this week by a man written in uh, 1895 by a man named Gustave Le Bon, and the book is called The Crowd, and I actually think you'd, you'd be interested in it if you wanted to read through it a little bit. It's it's relevant today because uh, we're seeing not only in person, but also online, the, um, the elevation of the mob, the elevation of the crowd as its own entity, and that was Le Bon, Gustave Le Bon's kind of premise was that when gathered in numbers, the crowd kind of takes a mind of its own. And one of his assertions, and of course this is all talking, you know, he's writing this in 1895. It's all it's all rooted in kind of, um, you know, uh, well, quite old biological and psychological terminology and ideas. But one of the things he talks about, and, and we would maybe say it differently, but he, he notices that in the mob, the higher reasoning capacity of the individual is removed, and all you have left is the lower reasoning. So the more instinctual, or he would refer to it as like the more animalistic tendencies, and that's kind of what you see in verse 54. They're enraged and they grind their teeth at him. I mean, I imagine you've got they're they're operating out of that low the the the, the low instincts, the low feelings, feelings only. But 55, look at verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Let that sit for a minute, would you? If you are not with me right now in being... Concerned in a way you haven't been concerned before about the possibility of mobs ruining <laughs> much of my life. If you're not worried about that right now, uh, it's okay. I don't. I'm not going to try to make you worried about it. I think you will probably be worried about it eventually. I am. I am worried about it. I am seeing the. Um, reason thrown out the window i'm seeing the crowd being followed without a lot of clarity about where the crowd is going i'm seeing the higher functions of intelligence evacuated and the lower order of animalistic tendencies embraced and i'm seeing all that but i just am so moved by verse the juxtaposition the contrast between verses 54 and 55 you know, Stephen saw them enraged, and he saw them grind their teeth. But that's not what he was looking at. Verse 55. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven. He didn't look at the grinding of the teeth. He looked at the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God is just a—it's just a magnification of Jesus' rule over all things. Verse 56. though Stephen was lynched by the mob. In that book that Gustave Le Bon wrote in eighteen eighty-five, called The Crowd, he says that uh, the first uh, idea of the crowd is that the individual forming part of a crowd acquires, just based on the numerical considerations, a sentiment of invincible power which allows him to yield to instincts which, had he not had he been alone, he would have kept under constraint. So these people are all together in their rage. And they wouldn't alone throw a single stone at Stephen. But together, there's something about the crowd, about the mob, about the fascist mob, that allows them to do what they do, to lynch this man, Stephen, the crowd is mindless, it's foolish, it's cruel, but woe unto us if we look at the crowd instead of looking at Christ. Well, let me wrap this up by pointing something out to you that a new a new pattern has emerged right here in chapter 8 you've probably heard people talk about how church history goes through seasons or the church goes through seasons. And sometimes it's winter and sometimes it's spring. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard really up until this point, there's been a pattern at the end of almost every story we get all the way through chapter six. Um, there's this pattern we see in which some action is taken and people believe uh, lots of people believe many people believe it's like um you know, almost in everything. Even adding deacons. You know, it says the word of forth, word of God went forth, and many priests were added to those who believe. Like the, the the disciples get arrested, and more people get saved. Like it's, you know, Peter and John go get donuts, and a thousand people get saved. Like that's the idea. It's like they're just in that season where boom, 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 boom. But now we don't see that. Even though you would think in this particular moment we would. This is, this is the most stunning act of bravery in the whole uh, up until this point. The crowd is emboldened uh, by their crowd, by their numbers. Stephen stands alone, stands alone in courage and conviction. He is, f- he is not fragile. He is anti-fragile. So you would think that if this pattern, this is the place where this pattern would obviously manifest itself again, and we would see that thousands of people were saved because of this incredible act of bravery that's not what happens, and that's not what's going to happen moving forward much. What we're going to see now is more of a war of attrition. Individuals saved, for the most part. And when there are more than individuals saved, plenty, plenty, plenty of opposition. So what we need to do in this moment is just brace ourselves for the possibility that in particular moments of time, as we said last week, God allows his enemies a longer leash. And there will be times in which the calloused and the fragile fascist crowds have their way. What we get at the beginning of chapter 8 isn't some beautiful, and many people were saved, but instead, chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Super calloused, fragile fascists are in many respects the hardest challenge for the church. Their hearts are hard and deep down they live in this constant fear over their house of cards lifestyle being interrupted and they are so easily manipulated into either physical or social violence. And what does the church do in times like these? They preach the gospel. The church preaches the gospel and then we adorn the gospel with the inevitable suffering that will come from preaching the gospel and we wait because in the midst of our enemies is a Saul who will become a Paul in God's timing. I leave you with what Paul himself commanded Timothy in Second Timothy chapter four verses one through five. The same man who held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the same man who breathed murderous threats out, had been so thoroughly converted that he charges his disciple, Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus That's what we do. We preach the gospel. We endure the suffering. And we wait to see Saul made into Paul. And God will do it in his time, in his season. Amen.